Welcome back to The Brandon White Show, where we have conversations worth listening to give you an edge to win in your business and your life. I'm your host, Brandon White. Here we go. Hello, friends. Welcome to The Edge. Today, we're talking with Perry Ustam, who is the co-founder of Recruity, a software-as-a-service company, and he shares his journey on how he wound up building a successful SaaS company, starting working with his dad in a bowling alley, later building a gaming company, and then taking the principles of building a game and applying it to something that would otherwise not necessarily make sense, but recruiting software. Perry's got a great story and he shares tons of lessons learned across all the companies that he's tried, failed, built, been successful at, that you can use to help build your company. Here we go. Welcome to the Edge Podcast, your weekly playbook about the inner game of building a successful business, making you a happier, healthier, and richer business owner. And here's your host, Brandon White. Good morning, Perry. Hi, Brandon. How are you? Good. How are you doing this morning? Actually, it's probably this afternoon in Amsterdam, afternoon. isn't it? Afternoon. It is. <laughs> It's a bit dark here. Do you want me to turn on some light or it's okay? Oh, no. I think it uh, yeah. uh, it looks good. Okay. Some shadow. How are you? Um, doing good, man. I really appreciate you joining us today. Likewise. Good. Thanks Thanks for having me. Great being here. Excited. What's the uh, weather like in Amsterdam today? The last few weeks haven't been that good. Not much summer. And now in the last two days, it's getting better. So uh, it's pretty good. It's proper summer this for us. Yeah. Does summer mean it's warmer? It's warmer. People can actually go to the beach. It's like 28 degrees or something. It doesn't get much warmer here. So that's, that's, that's enough summer for us, yeah. Yeah, well, that's good. At least you're seeing some sun, right? Yeah, it is. It is. And a lot of people are remote in our case. So I, think, I guess they're all over the place in Europe now. Oh, really? So all over Europe? Yeah, true. We have a lot of people that went back uh, in COVID times to family. They're working remote, so it's a bit scattered all over uh, Europe these days. Yeah. Well, how's that working out? Is that a big change for you? Nah, not that much, to be honest. Like we actually started to work remote a bit more just before the pandemic started, and now um, I guess it just accelerated the trend. But being in Amsterdam as a company, we have half the company in Poland, in Poznan, and half the company in, in Amsterdam now, also in the US these days. But uh, so we're kind of used to work remote, but um, due to being in Amsterdam, we have a lot of expats in the team. So they, they tend to go back and forth to family anyway. So that's okay. Well, that's less uh, money for your office. <laughs> well, that bill continues. <laughs> it's a good spot. Well, we don't want to cancel it. So. Yeah, that's true. Well, listen, before we get started, you know, I, I saw that you were in Amsterdam, obviously, with recruiting. And yeah, I think you studied at Rotterdam. Correct. Yeah, yeah. And I studied at RSM School of Management. Oh, really? Yeah. That's the same. I actually did Erasmus too. Yeah, Rotterdam School of Management. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. I did an international MBA at UNC Chapel Hill and we did. Cool. We studied at RSM and a few other places mm-hmm. around the world. So I know where you're from and ah. I spent a little bit of time at in Amsterdam and yeah. there is a bar called something anchor. Do you know what I'm talking about on the corner right there? Yeah, it could be. Well, it's probably good you don't know that name. <laughs> <laughs> okay. 
But uh, yeah, it was a fun time. It was totally legit bar, cool. but it was called something. Okay. Anchor. Okay. Um, okay. No, anyway, I will find that someday. <laughs> Maybe not, but I'll look through some pictures when I was younger and see what we were doing. Well, listen, I really, before we get to recruiting, I'd love to learn how you got to where you are today and sort of yeah. what that process was. Have you always been a, a nerd entrepreneur? I say yeah. that lovingly because <laughs> yeah, I am yeah. one. Or, yeah. um, you know, how did it start out? Yeah, that's a good one because I think it sounds a bit cliche, but um, I'm in the very early days, I already knew I wanted to be a, a gangster, an entrepreneur because my grandpa was an entrepreneur. My dad is an entrepreneur. So it's kind of like kitchen table entrepreneurship, you could say. So I literally, when I was 16, 17, was figuring out which college degree can I go to that has something to do with, with actually entrepreneurship because a lot, like you, you mentioned on the RSM, in Rotterdam, a lot was management related and not, not a lot actually more in depth on entrepreneurship. And then I found this master degree in Rotterdam, which was entrepreneurship and new business venturing. So I went through the whole bachelor literally because I wanted to go for that master's. So that, that entrepreneurial spirit has been running through my veins, I guess, since a little boy. So I knew I wanted to do something independent. Yeah. What did your grandfather and your father do? Yeah, yeah. So my grandpa, he passed away when I was actually like half a year old. So I never met him, unfortunately. But he started a flower import and export business. So the area I grew up near the seaside in the Netherlands actually is quite familiar for the, the flower area, like a lot of tulips, etc. That's what the Netherlands is known for in the early days, like the tulip mania. That's like the stock exchange these days. And my dad took over that business, but by then it was already transformed into a bowling alley. And he expanded the bowling alley into restaurant and catering business. And then went into property development and from property development started to do some startup investments. I guess the red line throughout the family has been pivot when needed. You know, don't sit still, don't get lazy, see opportunities and just throw the steer upside down if you feel it's needed. So they've, they've gone left and right throughout the years. Yeah. So bowling, bowling doesn't strike me and maybe, you know, this is my American lens, which we probably rightly so get beat up as Americans because we only see that. But I didn't realize that bowling would be popular or even really known in Europe. Yeah, maybe it's not like as a national sport that big, you know, like football, soccer is here, but um, or basketball is bigger, I guess, in terms of size. But but nevertheless, it's a niche sport where people do get pretty fanatic and there are, there's a proper, like there's proper team. So we used to, I used to grow up next to the bowling alley. So our house was literally attached to the bowling. So me and my brother would be running on the, through the bowling in the early days and it, like it would open at 1 p.m. So the morning was our, our, our playground and the afternoon was a commercial business, you know? So, so we've seen like, uh, like, like actually leagues playing on Wednesday evening and, and they do take it serious, of course. Yeah. So a bit of a niche sport, but nevertheless uh, pretty active. Yeah, I think that's a good point. When the uh, bowling people who that I know are very loyal to it, so it provides really good recurring revenue. Does that bowling alley still exist today? Yeah, he sold the business in the end. Like he sold it about poor already twelve, fourteen years ago, and is still an advisor. But he, um, yeah, he got an offer to sell the the, the bowling, including the, the restaurants, etc. And it moved to a different location in the end. And he actually moved on to property development. Yeah. Well, that's interesting. So you really did know from the early days, just from having that exposure and learning about your grandfather, that you wanted to be your own boss. Was that was that the appeal? What was the appeal that you saw with your dad 
was it that he controlled his own schedule or was it that it was just more exciting? Yeah, it's a good one because it's, it's just two answers. Like, I think part of me did not want to be an entrepreneur because the, like the schedule he had when running the bowling was insane. You know, like he would, he would work. It was open 364 days a year, right? So they would be working every day. And my mom and dad both worked in the business actually. So they would be working like throughout the year, never really go on a holiday, like always long, long days because it would be 1 p.m. till like 2 a.m. every single day. So part of me did not want to go into that journey. That's also why my, my brother and I said, you know, when my dad asked the case, hey, any interest to take over this rolling, we said, look, I, I think we're going to be running a different business. That. So the IT world attracted me much more from that perspective. But I, I guess, you know, if that's a kind of like lifestyle you grow up with and you see that passion that your parents have and they have their own cause and, and it's their, it's their life. Then it's almost like, uh, it's almost like you really don't see another option or something. You know, you just want to, you, you kind of want to adopt that passion they have for to, to build and grow something in. Did it ever scare you that, that the business, you, what you, the money you had was only as good as the money that you earned? Was that, you know, did that ever cross your mind in that sense? Yeah, luckily, I, I never remember that, actually. My, but my parents told me that they've been through very difficult times, you know, when they started the business. And it was, this is a family business that by the time they sold it was 30 years that they've been running it, actually. So quite a long time. And you can imagine in, in the first couple of years that when you don't really have that name yet as a bowling alley and catering establishment, you really need to build that. So they had to really they'll find a way to get a loan. It's been different. They've been on the path of bankruptcy a few times, actually, not, not one time, but actually two times. So those, those have been stressful times, but it must be, it must have been just before us uh, or in the early days when we were just kids, my brother and I. So we never really actually noticed that. But, but there was, because it was a family business, an extreme commitment to the business. It, it was a life and literally living next to the building. We didn't know anything <laughs> other than that, actually. Uh, that, that's probably true. If that's all you know, you really don't, not that you don't have an option, but it's very hard. I think it happens on the other side for people whose families work for other people and very hard for them to understand how you would take a chance. So yeah. I think it goes both ways. So where did you start? You went to school, you're on this path, you take an entrepreneurship undergraduate, new venture undergraduate, and what happens? I think, to be honest, the idea of becoming an entrepreneur became a goal on its own. And it's uh, so when I was 16, 17, early 17, I started a business quality technology together with my nephew. And we were importing gaming machines from the US. So we had like bowling machines that you could, uh, that we actually put into catering establishments like bowlings. And then we would split the revenue with the owner. So they didn't have to pay any rent for the, for the gaming machines. And then we just uh, kind of like divided the profit. And that was fun. Like we, we learned a thing or two about international trade on importing these machines and, and, and about the Dutch rulings regarding gaming machines, because it can also be seen as gambling machines, of course. So there's some very tight ruling. But I think I was more busy with the idea of that I want to be an entrepreneur than, than really thinking that through and just jumping in there and see, you know, jumping in the water and see whether or not I could swim. So that experience wasn't the best. Like we learned a lot, but this wasn't a, a proper business, to be honest. It was a good learning experience. But and when I went to college, when I was uh, about 18, then, then, uh, then my, my nephew moved on and, uh, and I decided to focus on, on study. So I didn't continue with that. When you said that, 
at 16, entrepreneurship became a goal. What, what do you think the, your vision of that was? Was it that you were wheeling and dealing? Was it that you were making all this money? Was it something else? To be honest, it, it's, it haven't been money, haven't been the, the, the driver, to be honest. It was really more of a lifestyle, you know, to, to, to literally have the, to, to see ideas in your mind go on paper, go in a business plan, going outside a business plan in reality and getting other people on board to, you know, join the excitement. And I think it's like, uh, like an expedition or something, you know, you just want to go, go and, and get somewhere together. And of course, money-wise, that translates, that's a, a means to measure the success of it, right? But not, not a goal on its own. Yeah. Did you actually build a business plan back then? Yeah, yeah. Like, because I was studying in business school, I had the tendency to actually overwrite on business plans rather than to execute on them, actually. So the first time uh, I met my co-founder, and, and we'll get to that later, of course, I was actually writing a long business plan on all the elements. Every chapter was a different element on the business, you know, on HR, supply chain management, you know, of course, financial models, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So I think the university taught me to override it a little bit, maybe <laughs> overthink it. Even. But do you think that, and I did the same thing when I first started, I think I wrote a 55 page business plan that, <laughs> yeah. you know, was probably dead the day that I put the last period on that page. But do you think it did help you think it through? This episode is sponsored by the Halle Financial Team at Expert Lending. Buying a house in today's market is competitive, and you need a lender that can close fast and get you the very best rate. The team is licensed in 48 states and has over 20 years experience in the real estate and lending space and access to lending rates that most mortgage brokers can't get. I know because I'm an investor in the team. If you need a mortgage or know someone that does, call or text Kara at 571-271-9086 and talk to a real human who will give you the customer service you deserve. Again, call or text Kara at 571-271-9086. Now back to the show. Yeah, yeah, I think, I think that's definitely true. Like in the end, we, we kind of joke around now, nowadays internally, like, look, it's better. The art of improvising and jumping opportunities hands is worth more than the art of like executing your business plan, right? Because the world is, is, is changing that rapidly. And really, if you actually focus on one plan, you could kind of become blindsided and don't see the opportunity that pop up left and right. So, we, but that's, that's of course joking around a bit because I think it does make you, you can also see it in a way that you, you have this business plan as a Northern star, but instead of, you know, writing that in stone, you just rewrite it every month or so. And instead of a business plan of 56 pages, maybe a 10 pager with all the important elements and just rewrite it every month. So you, so you do, you are open to adjust your goal, but you, you do think about the different elements. Yeah. I think that makes sense. So you are importing game consoles that are borderline gambling machines and figure out that that probably isn't something that you want to be in or could be extremely difficult to manage the regulations. Uh, oh yeah, the regulations are crazy because we, although there wasn't real gambling involved, there was more fun machines and there would be no payouts in cash. Just, uh, just like you, you spend half an hour machine. That's it. It still faced the same regulations as gambling machines. So that was very difficult that that would have taken years to get a decent business up and running. So, yeah. so you just scrapped it when your cousin 
Last yeah, yeah, that kind of like slowly, slowly died that concept after a year or so. Yeah. Were you disappointed? Yeah, I, I think I was a little bit disappointed in myself because I'm like, hey, you, you want to be an entrepreneur? Now you have the opportunity. Your nephew's asking you to jump on this boat with him and, and do it. So I had high expectations, I guess. But then, then reality was so much different than all those business plans, right? So I think I was a bit disappointed that it failed. But on the other hand, I also know, like, look, I'm young, I'm still studying. This was to gain experience and it could have been a success, but let's just, you know, let's just try it again. So it didn't feel, but it, it did feel like a bit of a disappointment, to be honest. <laughs> well, I think we're all disappointed when things, when, when things don't work out. So how do you pick your butt up and move to the next thing? I literally had this book next to my bed and then a little notebook. And then every time I had ideas, I would just write them on a different page. So every idea on a different page and they get back to the ideas. I write more details, et cetera. So I was always busy with like, okay, the moment I have a really good idea and I, and I really thought about all the details, let's just go again. So I've been doing that for a few years uh, when that didn't work out. And then in the end, you know, when I was actually on the last year of my uh, my studies, then I decided to actually jump on one and uh, start a business with, with Powell, my current co-founder. So well, how did you then a couple oh, of years? Yeah. So sorry, the well, one is I think you said something that's really important is you got to keep a notebook next to, next to your bed. And I have a waterproof pad in the shower. <laughs> nice, <laughs> because I find that some of the best ideas and then. Because of the way your brain works, that when you shift your environment, you can forget about them. Now, my wife writes these little jokes on there sometimes, like wash your butt. But between those is are some good ideas. So I think that's really important because I think yeah. good ideas come to us when we're not necessarily expecting it. Yeah. That's funny. I had the same, like I would wake up at 3 a.m., have an idea, and then I think, okay, I'll get back to tomorrow, and next day I would forget. So I literally start to write down the ideas and whenever they would come, and then build upon them the next day. So that that, that was my uh, my trick, yeah, to just write them down whenever they come. And they always come at 3 or 4 a.m. then, yeah. So you're, you've got this long list. How do you choose... Which one out of all these, did you try a few of them? Did you just think about it? Did you sit down? I mean, how do you make that? How do you select that choice? Yeah, I think the the, the early concept of quality technology that, that I was running with my, my nephew did taught me to make sure you have a real proper team that's complementary to each other. And we were complementary in quality technology, but then I knew like, okay, the next business I want to run is an like an IT company. It has to be software related. I really want to do something in like the IT sector. So I need to find someone that's complementary to me. And I'm, I'm a business guy. So I need, let's find a co-founder that's like a true tech guy, an engineer by nature. So I had these ideas and of course there were all apps and all cloud ideas, right? But, but I thought like, well, that doesn't make any sense until I have really someone that has the same passion. My counterpart, CTO, that that actually has uh, ha- has a similar passion with entrepreneurship. So then, then it became more important for me at some point to first find someone and then work on ideas together, than to just start with the idea. So I literally turned it upside down at some point and say like, well, why don't I first start looking for a co-founder, and that ha- that we have this spark together and this real good connection, and then we work on an idea together because maybe he has a great idea or something, right? So so I actually started to then forget about the ideas and start to look for a co-founder then. Well, I want to talk about this because trying to find a co-founder is like trying to find your 
significant other at some point, right? I mean, yeah. it's a needle in a haystack. How do you, how yeah. do you do that? That is, that's true because again, overthinking and overreading that, you know, I was reading like, oh, you know, finding a co-founder is more important than finding your wife because, you know, it's like a marriage, you know, you're going to see each other, maybe at some point, even more on a daily basis, weekly basis than your wife, you're going to be stuck in your room together eight hours a day. So it's, so I was literally overthinking that process. Like I tend to overthink many things. And so I had like a whole application process. It was a proper headhunting process. I was going to start up weekend events, you know, to do like hackathons in the weekend and, and meet other entrepreneurs, going to network events. I've been on exchange program in Singapore for my studies and then been to incubators, meeting people, like literally been to 20, 30 events where, where I know people would be that have like an entrepreneurial aspiration or ideas to bounce ideas. And in the end, I, I also signed up on a couple of platforms. I, I signed up on founder2b.com, which unfortunately doesn't exist anymore, but it was this, this online platform. You could make a profile just to, to, to bounce ideas with people and literally find co-founders. That's basically what it was. And then that's actually where I met Powell. He had a profile. I had a profile, started chatting and I thought like that, that sounds like a great guy. Let's meet. Yeah. And was he in your hometown? No, no, he, um, I was back then uh, in Amsterdam and he lived in Poznan in Poland, still is actually. So we started chatting online and, um, moved to a Skype call, of course. And then I remember he actually said, like, uh, sounds great. I think we have a good connection. Why don't we meet? And so that sounds great. Should I come over? He's no, I'll, I'll drive to you. And he actually stepped in the car, drove 11 hours and was there like the next day. Yeah. Wow. Well, that's, that's cool. I have a, Another question. How are you paying the bills while you're doing all this? Cause it didn't happen overnight, right? 30 meetings. That's at least 60, 90 days worth of effort. I didn't have a lot of bills because I, my, I remember my dad bought this very old house that was, it's got to be teared down and like reconstructed for like property development. So I asked him like, Hey, it's kind of like this fight club house, you know, from the movie, like literally that look and feel. Like there was water on the wall, there was water in the basement. Actually, we had we had gravity on the walls, and we painted startup house. And I invited friends to work there too. We had this old house together where we were just running a business. So I literally had no bills, and I was just doing some side work. So I was doing some. I was working as a waiter in in restaurants, also during my studies, just to to pay the bills and and get some savings. But our our maintenance in the early days on our private life was very low to almost non-existing. <laughs> so you kept your you you almost on purpose kept your burn rate low. Yeah, definitely. And and when we started the business, um, when we met, we we actually decided to to start a company together called Georon. This was the first company we started together, which was a, like a mobile gaming company. So we we actually made GPS games which we called mobile activation games. So games to actually get people moving to locations. But that was fully bootstrapped. So we literally had that, you know, three, 4K of savings that we invested ourselves. And, and all we needed was a lot of our own time, which we had plenty just coming out of school. So um, yeah, that, that bootstrap mindset, I think both privately as well as business-wise helped in the early days. How long did it take from the time that you decided to stop working on ideas and concentrate on on finding a founder to when you found pal 
Ooh, I think it took me a year or so to, to say like, okay, all great ideas, but they're worth nothing on paper. I, I just need to look how to execute these ideas and maybe the execution even more important than the idea. So it starts with a co-founder and that took about a year or so. Yeah. Before I met Powell and, uh, and actually, and, and then when we actually met and started this, this went really fast because I think he had the first concept up and running in like four months. Yeah. So we started to do the first test. Isn't it funny though, how other people who are out there who, who are just starting, and even when I look back, you tend to think that it happened really fast. And when people are like, well, I can't find a co-founder and, and you ask someone and like, well, how long have you been looking? Well, I've been looking for two weeks. That's like saying, I've been looking for my wife or husband for two weeks, yeah. right? Like, yeah, yeah. True. I mean, I mean it's just it's just this and, crazy thing. And if you so, think about it, if you think about it, if it's if it's about building a business, if that's that's the start of what you want to do, then I think you also have to calculate the years before that 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 you go on and you want to study about it, right? So you've done like four or five years of studying to get to the point of you actually jumping in the water and start your entrepreneurial journey. So in, in a way, yeah, it's actually more like five or six years before you feel you're ready to do something, right? Yeah. So do you think that you went through all this education too. And do you think at the end of the day that, that we needed that to be an entrepreneur? I mean, did your father go through six years, your grandfather go through six years of study? I mean, I'm exaggerating, but at least yeah, four, right? Yeah. No, I mean, no, I, I don't think you need it. Like it's a criteria to, to be successful as an entrepreneur. And I was the first in my family actually to go on to a college degree. So they've, they've been street smart, as you say. But I think it, it does help. It depends a bit on your character, whether you want to analyze things before you act or whether you'd like to more learn from your mistakes. But I, I'm definitely the first. So it, to me, the best metaphor I could give is it kind of feels like you want to be a good swimmer. Do you jump in and just learn how to swim? Sure, that that's one way of doing it. But other people maybe want to learn about the water and how not to drown and maybe take some you know measures before jumping in. So it gets more about the way you want to go about it than whether it's good or bad. Yeah. I think that's a really great analogy. So you, a year, you're waiting tables, you're living in this fight club startup house. God knows what goes on there. You, pal drives 11 hours from Poland to Amsterdam. You, he comes to this fight club house. God knows what he thought, but he was probably excited. (laughs) And in four months you have your first idea up yeah. and running, which is a gaming company. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, if you say it like this, it sounds a bit like a Google basement story, but it, it pretty much was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So so then what happened? Then I told them, like, look, this this whole remote was back then pretty new, at least to us. So, so you know, finding a co-founder that's not around, that's, uh, you know, like uh, 700 kilometers away, that's pretty scary. So I told him like, look, you're the engineer, your developer that's going to create this. It's your baby. If, you know, let's, let's try to work together. I'll do the commercial side. So I'll, if you build it, then I'll, I'll help find like beta testers, the first clients, you know, get our support and marketing up and running and give it half a year together after going live with the first version. And if you, if you want a pathways, no hard feelings, take the whole concepts at yours, right? So I think there have been an incredible amount of respect and trust uh, both ways still today. So I told them like we had this beta version and then I was just calling, literally calling companies like, Hey, we have this gaming company. We can promote your store, new store location or events or just literally calling, calling, calling. Also some friends of like other entrepreneurs. Hey, do you, do you know people that could help? 
And I was just trying to prove not only to myself, but to Paul that I could be of value as a co-founder and I could, I could compliment for his technical skills and actually, you know, get this to the market and get clients. So we literally went from a trialing campaign where we earned one, 2000 euro to like bigger clients where we had a campaign with ING Bank. Even we did a campaign for Samsung. Like we actually got some nice uh, names in, in the campaigns we were doing. We even started to do some games with augmented reality. We saw Pokemon Go kind of at some point. We we're like, you know, that's kind of what we had, but then, <laughs> then for GPS games. So it literally started step by step, but what happened to see the traction early on, you know, that, that proved also to Paul, like, okay, this is, this is my counterpart. We can do this together. Yet. How did you split the equity and how did that discussion go? It was a very quick discussion because I told him, you take 51%, I'll take 49. I trust you. And then he said, let's do the same. You take 51 and I take 49. So then we said, okay, then it's 50, 50, always 50, 50. That's it. So. That was a very short discussion. It wasn't really a discussion, but that foundation was also trust. I also told him, like, look, if you want to be the one that has the authority to sign stuff, then go ahead. I'm totally fine. And he said, no, you're in the Netherlands. We're going to open a Dutch company, do 50-50 there. You're locally represented, so you just sign all the stuff. I'll trust you. So that was a big, big amount of trust for someone that you don't know that long, you know, that you don't know that you actually do for half a year. Yeah. Well, I want to ask you, do you think that was, I mean, I think that's an incredible amount of trust and, and I'm interested to know where that came from. But also, do you think that you were just naive that you didn't quite understand that you could make a hundred million dollars and that an extra percentage point means that you get an extra million dollars? I mean, I'm just curious to when it went into that thought process. No, I, I still have the same mindset today. Like I still. I still tell them today, like, look, you're the engineer. You can actually create stuff. I'm just a business guy with a lot of marketing, blah, blah, that's throwing smoke in the air. So I still feel you deserve it more than I do. Uh, and that has been the mindset all along. And, and funny enough, I think both ways. So like I said, it wasn't really about the financial driver just on a goal its own. Sure, you want to be able to survive and build up something for your family. Sure, that becomes a goal at some point if you have a family. But it really was about, okay, we can build something impactful. So for me, whether it was about 30% of the business or 40 or 50 or 60, didn't really matter that much. And maybe it was a bit naive, but, but do remember I spent like a year to, you know, to meet tens, if not hundreds of people and, and having this, this big qualification criteria list in your mind and looking at, okay, I want someone I could trust and feel I can relate with on a personal level. And, you know, that understands what entrepreneurship means to your life. You know, that is not about the concept together, but it's about, look, we're going through this journey and maybe after this journey is going to be more. So, yeah, we might be actually tight for life, which in the end turns out to be so, you know, even after, after that business, we started another one. So, yeah. <laughs> what was the driver that put you over the line on trust? Cause it sounds like to me, you had a list of things or criteria getting to know you that you, you did have somewhere either on a piece of paper in the back of your mind. So what puts you over that threshold to say, yeah, this guy, I trust? I think there were a lot of signals both ways, you know, when it's about this equity discussion and someone says, you know, I'll trust you to have 51% or whether if someone says, I'll trust you to, you know, like have a certain decision rights in the power and represent the company. It, these are just examples, but there were many more of these examples where, where I could feel, okay, there's a lot of trust going both ways. And that, that was the foundation, trust and respect. And uh, I think the, the good thing about Paul in the early days, which uh, is like he had another company before, which was a software development house in Poland. 
And there was a bunch of uh, like engineers together, and he was the one picking up on the commercial part of that business. So he was doing sales and marketing at some point and handling clients. So he has a lot of experience in other disciplines than engineering. So I could, I could definitely, he could relate to a lot of topics that were important to me, whether it was about customer success or, or sales or marketing. And that was very special. So it's never been, you know, like a closed book saying, this is how I want to have it. And this is the way or, or the highway. It's been like a lot of respect and understanding both ways. So it just checked a lot of those boxes at some point. And I could say, look, you got to take a leap of faith, of course, at some point, but, uh, I think a well, well analyzed one. Yeah. So you have the beta up and running. You're calling five million people, which I think is really important too, because whatever you did or whatever you studied, you really are executing on a plan that is hard for a lot of entrepreneurs in that you find yourself in this self-licking ice cream cone that you're talking about your idea and you're convincing yourself that the idea is good. Whereas you, wherever that comes from, basically said, no, I'm going to call every single person I know and I'm going to find out if this thing's good. And if it is great, if it's not, we're going to kill it. Yeah, d- definitely. I think you at that point put away any, any ego or <laughs> or like ego you have and just said like, look, the most important thing is that we get this up and running. So let's just start calling and, and don't have a fear of being rejected a hundred times or a thousand times because after 500 times, someone says yes. So yeah, I think at that point, it's like a, a really narrow focus execution mode and you know what needs to be done. What's that number one is to get that ball rolling. So that, yeah, for me, also on a personal note, at that point in life was just the most important thing there was. So things like a social life, meeting with friends, birthday parties, events. No, I wasn't, I wasn't very active on that. Like there's one thing on my mind, which is like, I need to start this business. This needs to get going. And, uh, you know, but then we were also fortunate enough to have the opportunity to, to have that focus in your life. You know, I didn't have like a, a wife or a kid then, or like, like a lot of social, uh, you know, obligations or anything. So we also had the room. We were 20, what is it? 24, 25, good point in life that you can have that dedication. So it was a bit of luck too, I guess, and, and, and room that we could spend in our life. But nevertheless, like it doesn't extreme focus at that point yet. Yeah. I call that absolute focus. I think that people who rah, rah, the balance in life, I think is really important. And I try to be as balanced as possible. But the reality of it is, if you want to take an idea that comes to you at 3 a.m. in the morning or in a shower and turn that even into some concept, a product and a business, it would be unrealistic to think that you will not sacrifice other things. Do you think that's fair? Oh, yeah. 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 Unfortunately, it doesn't sound that nice, but I think, yeah, we have made a lot of sacrifices, you know. There's just, you have you have a couple of priorities in life and maybe as you get older, that tends to shift a little bit and you want to balance more. You don't want to focus on one priority or two, but you're kind of like a balancing more, right? Like now I have a sum, for instance, so you do take that in mind more often when you make decisions. But but yeah, I think the, the sacrifices were part of that game in the beginning and like it, it felt every time we make a sacrifice, it kind of felt we're one step ahead of someone that does not, a competitor. So yeah, it's part of the game. I tend to agree. I tend to say things that are true, but people, other people don't want to say because I think that humans have a tendency, Perry, to romanticize things. And I think entrepreneurship, maybe because of the internet more so, 
I don't know how you feel, has accelerated this romanticism around entrepreneurship and the fact that, well, anybody can be an entrepreneur. I don't know how you feel, Perry, but I actually mm. feel a little insulted by it all because I think that that would be like me saying, well, yeah, well, of course I could be a surgeon. Yeah, that's easy. I'll just go to school, go to med school and pass the exams and <laughs> do five years of uh, internship and I'll be operating on knees and making a million dollars a year. I mean, that's sort of what it feels like has happened on yeah. the internet. What do you think? Yeah, yeah. Then uh, two things pop in mind, like two quotes I once heard. Someone once told me like entrepreneurship is actually not fun when you go from one party and celebration to another. It's more like a fireman. You go from one fire to another and every time you extinguish one, your company grows. So that's the first year is how we definitely felt. It's like, look, this is not one big celebration mode where we're popping champagne all the time. No, no, this is definitely like we're in continuous fire mode where we have to go from one problem to another, running around like headless chicken. And then, of course, at some point, you do start to celebrate the little victories and take some time to you know, you know, also be aware of the success you have in the meantime. But the first few years, I would advise anybody to not be an entrepreneur because it's a lot of sacrifices, wasn't fun. It's like I think a lot of people would have stopped uh, already by you know having a couple setbacks. I remember that the second example is like uh, someone told me when, when we first, we had our first million in yearly revenue, we were like through the roof. We were like, wow, we've done it. We're there. Let's retire. This is it. And then one of our advisors said, like, you look, this is great what you guys did in this speed, but look, I think anybody could get as an entrepreneur to a million in revenue. It's really about how you get from one to 10. And we were like, we're like, oh my God, are you serious? You, do you know what we've been through to get here? You know, <laughs> I thought this is impossible what you're saying here. So maybe do people, you know, maybe everyone could be an entrepreneur, but it's really about, you know, is that a lifestyle or is that like a serious scaling business you're then building? In? Yeah, I think those are two great analogies. And I felt exactly like you did. I had a guy one time and I was really struggling on one of the companies to get to a million dollars. And I had I sat down with this guy who had a a restaurant chain that he was starting and he had already had a successful one that was actually called cozy here in the United States. And he said, he's like, Brendan, anybody can get to a million dollars. And I was like, well, what the hell is wrong with me? Because I've been struggling for three years to get this stupid thing over a million dollars. And now that, that I've done it a few times, I look back, I'm like, I'm that guy who says, yeah, anybody can get to a million dollars. The real question is, can you get to a million dollars and be profitable? That's another question. Yeah, that's a good one. Yeah. Right. And then can you actually get to a million dollars and take that to five, seven, 10, 12, 50, a hundred, maybe several hundred million dollars? And can you actually make money? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And that's a good one because we've, we've, we've always been doubtful about the whole VC route for our business. So we, we never wanted to take external money and just bootstrap the business. And uh, in our second business, Rukuti, we did take funding in the beginning once we had some uh, traction. And later on, we decided to actually buy back those shares. So so we like to say that we're bootstrapped because in the end it was not, but it did help us get going a little bit. So, so let's talk about that, but let's just jump back because you're doing yeah. the gaming company. What happens there with the gaming company? Uh, we couldn't get enough traction. Like there was a lot of legislation. We started to do some business in Belgium, which was good. But then when we started to go to the Netherlands, we just faced a lot of legislation. I mean, okay, this is going to take years before we can actually put these machines in the market and they need to be certified, for instance, which takes a long time. 
And I was actually then going to college at my first year. So I, I said, like, look, I need to focus. I also want to go abroad for my studies. So uh, we decided to stop it at some point. Yeah. So then what happens? Do you both commit that when you say stop it, you basically just turned it off one day and said, that's it. That's it. Yeah. 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 We sold the machines we had in stock and that's it. Like it, it wasn't really a proper business. We had like eight or 10 machines, maybe, you know, got the first traction and then knew like, okay, before this is a proper business, it's going to be not worth the effort, I guess. Now underestimate the amount of uh, like legislation and stuff involved. Yeah. So that happens with the gaming. I'm sorry. I want to go. And then, and you, yeah. you met your co-founder and you're on this. Oh, sorry. Man. I was talking about the I, first, first thing yeah, that came yeah, to yeah, mind. Yeah, I was yeah. like, well, you must have been the early treasure hunt. Yeah. Well, that, that actually is also a gaming company, but that was actually was more scaling better. And we did have a decent client base. We did, st- we did have profit at some point, but at about two years. So we started in 2012 and then about early 2015. We figured like, look, this is a decent business. We had about three, four people working. We had a couple campaigns running, but it also will have its limitations. So we knew like, okay, this is, um, it's very local, like literally GPS games. You know, we had to go from campaign to campaign. It was, it was a campaign business, kind of like turning into a marketing agency. So we went back to the beginning and we said like, look, why did we start this business? We wanted to have an, an international business. Paul had a software house before, so he didn't want to have a software house again. He wanted to work on a product as scalable and international as possible. So when Jiron was turning into something we thought a scalable software platform, but when it was turning into more of a campaign-based business, you know, more like a marketing agency, we saw that going in the wrong direction. And we actually tried to mold it into, you know, into a SaaS and say like maybe we could sell subscriptions for people can organize their own games or we can have company games, which we tried for about half a year, year, but that's Pokemon Go was, was ahead of us then. <laughs> so it wasn't that Jiron wasn't like a hard stop. The site was live still. I think we took it offline maybe a month ago. It's been live for years. So it wasn't like a real hard cut, but we, we just started to work on a new concept on the site at some point. And that became recruiting. That became a core focus. So that been more gradually that shifted. And what was the premise of the idea there? Or and it still is actually. Yeah. So what we did in 2015 is Paul and I met physically again. We sit down. We made a list of okay, what do we like, what we don't like, and that that became a list of something we call our ten commandments of an ideal scalable business. So we said B2B SaaS because we need to sell licenses. We need to work on one product that a lot of people use. Not like we learn in Jiravan, like tweak you know into new campaigns all the time. Too much customization. We need to have short sales, uh, short sales cycles, which in Duron was like 13 months. So we need to have something people can trial. Very much product-led growth here nowadays. That wasn't on our mind back then. That was more like you know, we need to have an inbound-driven business that can that can get leads on marketing, volume, conversions. We actually, you know, wrote down 10 of these ideas. One of them was also like when we start to sell it, you know, we need to be able to sell it before we build it. So literally get people to, to commit to using it and then start to build. So very lean approach. And that's how we ended up with this 10 criteria. And then we looked at Jira and we said, like, okay, look, that's, that's 10 out, that's two out of 10. That's not going to be the business we want to run in the long run. So that's the point where we started to scout for new ideas and literally spend about half a year together to look at different SaaS concepts in the B2B sector because we didn't want to go to B2C. Like we also learned that in, in uh, Jira, too much marketing costs to get a business up and running. B2B, SaaS, and then 
international from day one. That that's been the criteria we've been screening uh, concepts on. And and I'm going to ask you again because a lot of people always wonder during the six months that you were doing this new idea, were you using money from whatever little money or money that the other business yeah. was throwing off to yeah, pay your exactly. bills? Yeah. You're still living in this Fight Club house. Yeah, yeah, still living in this Fight Club house. Still probably have some picture of us working there on on like this with mold on the wall and everything. So we we could fund it because we literally needed a few thousand euro just to you know get some cost of our hosting up and running, a couple of tools. But it it was more on time commitment than money in the beginning. So we could we could fund this from Run where we had some savings from the campaigns we were doing, and then um, bootstrap it ourselves uh, basically. Yeah. So you six months you kick this idea around. And then you start building it. And, yeah. And the point. premise and the premise beyond the concept, can you talk a little bit about the actual business and what it does? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So so we first had this blueprint of this is what our business should look like. That was step number one. And we said we only start until we have something that, that really fits this whole blueprint. And we were looking at different concepts that we were running into ourselves. We were looking at brand monitoring software from monitor your brand. We were looking at CRMs, we were looking at all kinds of SaaS. And then we actually, when we were hiring people ourselves, we, we learned about the recruitment software industry, about how it's like to hire people. And we actually faced ourselves when we we're hiring as, as first time founders, how time consuming and complex that process is that we knew very little about. So when we had the first experience of hiring people, we couldn't find good software. It took a lot of time. We didn't really know what we were doing. Like, how do you screen someone? How do you make a job advertisement? How do you promote that? So that process really caught our attention because it's like, wow, that's, that's a big headache for a lot of people that, that we could build an aspirin for. So, the, and that checked all the boxes on, okay, this is, we could, we could build something international. It could be inbound driven. It's such a clear pain. We could offer free trials for people. And then after two weeks, they could decide whether or not they want to adopt and pay by credit card or not. So we faced this problem ourselves and then it checked all the boxes. So those two came together and we said like, okay, let, we need to start building recruitment software. Yeah. And what year was this? 2015, actually. So not too long ago. Yeah. So, but that was still, believe it or not, six years ago. And six years ago, the recruiting space was still hadn't matured in the sense that today I think there's a, a lot of people out there doing it. Luckily you did it and, and it I think you have four thousand clients and it sounds mm-hmm. like you're you've you've taken off. But how did you did you just think about how you were hiring engineers and then say, well we're just gonna code that and put it out there because likely these yeah. other companies don't have this process and they'll pay to have that process on a platform for them that arguably helps them make better choices. Yeah. If you strip it down, it really was like, look, when we started, there were already a lot of applicant tracking systems out there, which would be the technical term of, of the, you know, of like a recruitment software. And we, when we started to be of mark, do a bit of market research, right? Then you get back to your business school habits and you start to write a business plan. So one of the chapters was like market research. Do market research, Google around and find hundreds, hundreds of suppliers, not one, 20, 30. Like this was, a, as you say, like a red ocean, right? So we looked around and said like, well, that, that's a lot. But once we started to dig deeper and trial some of them, we thought like, well, this is too expensive. We cannot afford this. Or we started to use it and we're like, holy moly, this is clunky. This is old. This is like, this hurt my eyes, like literally. 
So we came from this gaming background where it's all about if you build games, it needs to be easy to adopt, easy to understand. You need to be hooked in a couple of minutes, otherwise people move out. And if you take that mindset and you look at recruitment software in 2015, we were like, wow, why don't we take a bit of this gaming UI, you know, like modern way of working, like very much doing ourselves, being this remote company into this recruitment world. So we felt like, yes, it's a red ocean. It's a crowded space back then already. It became even more crowded, of course. But it, it didn't have the fresh breath of air that we felt it needed. We just felt we could build something better here. Yeah. And I think that's an, an important thing for people is, is that just because something appears to be competitive and is a red ocean, as you say, from the, what is that, the Blue Ocean book? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> is if you can figure out that you could do it and make it easier to use, adopt, and understand, then in general, even, and I'm not saying yours is, I'm saying in general, even if your product isn't quite as good, whatever good means, if it's easy to use and it works, people will buy it, right? Yeah. Yeah, no, definitely. That That's really how we came to think about building a business because when we were at some point, we were chatting to investors. So we had like the first, you know, like 50 paying customers. Literally, we started super low market. So we started with like $19 a month. That was the first plans we had live. But once we had paying customers, we were doing what four or 5k a month. That's when we started to look for like, maybe we could use some funding to accelerate. So I've been pitching to investors then and all of them asked, you're crazy. Like it's such a crowded market. How are you better than this or better than that or better than them? We're like, why do we need to be better? It's like if you go to Amsterdam and you want to find an Italian place, right? Is there one Italian place? They're like a hundred and they're all doing fine. The market is big enough. But that, that answer didn't really resonate with investors. They're like, look, no, this is, you need to be better. You need to be a winner. But we never had this mentality of like, look, we need to be the number one. It's like, no, there's enough space for four or five. And I think nowadays in our space, if you look at all of them, there's a natural top 10 and they're all great businesses. So, you know, does it need to be one winner? No, that never has really has been our mentality, to be honest. So it didn't scare us off, but it did scare investors off, <laughs> for sure. Well, you, I'm interested because you, you bootstrapped all your businesses, your father, your grandfather, all the way to your gaming company, your first gaming company. Mm-hmm. Is it Paul? P-A-U-L, your co-founder? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Paul and you bootstrapped this, this last company. You actually not only bootstrapped it, but you used the cash to fund recruitee yeah. yeah and now all of a sudden you think you need money what what changed yeah it's also the first time we were we were on to something you know it felt like okay now we're on a rocket you know and you you need some fuel to launch a rocket so we really thought like okay we need not just money to grow this but we also need a good network how do we scale in other countries you know, do we set up entities or not how do we hire like i mentioned ourselves actually so we had a lot of questions as first-time founders. And um, so we were definitely looking for smart money. So in the end, we decided not to go to venture capitalists, but to go to angels that had built a business before. And Robert Peisman, Luke Bronze, Ike Dave and I, there were three entrepreneurs that helped. And they did bring the network and experience that we needed, right? So it wasn't only about money. It was really about, you know, how do we set up all this business in general? Yeah. Do you think we as entrepreneurs, business owners, make mistake? And because one thing you just said is really important as I, as I think back on my journey and other people that I've helped along the way, we mistake, there's this thing, smart money. I mean, 
I think we mistake that we need to take the money to get the expertise. And I'm not saying that that's necessarily the case. I think what I've learned is, is that they're actually two separate things. There's smart people that can help you. And then there's, well, there's three things. Smart people that can help you. There's money. And some investors just want an ROI. I mean, like, mm-hmm. hey, look, I think you're smart. You'll figure it out. You make me money. And then there's this smart money. I have to say, Perry, I'm interested in your perspective, but I feel like as I'm thinking about this in real time, so any listeners that hold me to this, I, I get the, <laughs> I, I get to, I get to change this. And so does Perry, because we're, we're on the spot. I feel like that thing around smart money. And I think a lot of people market that, but mm. I don't think I'm not saying they're not smart. I'm just saying mm. they don't always bring these other things that we perceive smart money means. They bring the check, but then the other stuff doesn't come along. What do you think? Yeah. I mean, it really depends how much time this other person had, because if you're a professional fund and your job is to make investments at 10, 20 a year and this accumulates, right? And how much time can you reasonably spend with one business? Like literally it could be half an hour a week. So the real question is, what do you expect of this other person? You know, do you expect they come in your company and help? Because if you, if you then just really figure out how much time they have, then it's really about what can they contribute, right? So I do believe there, there are smart entrepreneurs that want to give back their knowledge, you know, and, and help other businesses. I just wouldn't count on them to say like, look, that's what's going to help you. you. You do need to do it on your own. And there's a lot of advice that can help you even without investing. But of course, it helps if they're committed by actually having shares in your company. I think that that makes them spend a bit more time with you. But but I think you're right. It really depends on it's 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 a selling point for a lot of investment firms nowadays to say, look, we're smart, we can contribute. But I would challenge every entrepreneur to then do the math on how much time they can spend with you, looking at the amount of work they have on their plate. Yeah, yeah, I think you're right. So you pivoted, so to speak, and and realized that the angel investors were really what you were looking for. I'll say one other thing. I, I don't know what you've yeah. done, but one thing that entrepreneurs I was taught was you got to have investors. Investors will serve on your board. And what I realized after, I don't know, maybe a decade or a decade and a half was actually I want completely independent people, at least a few of them on the board that haven't invested so that they're truly looking out for the business. Very good point. And uh, nowadays, I'm investing myself in a, in a couple businesses. And I, I always tell them, like, when people want board seats, maybe that's a time to disqualify some because I just want you to call me whenever you feel you need to call me. And I don't want the board meeting to be a place where that's the only place I could drill in your business and ask you questions and, and fire you up. I think, no, rather not. And rather, if you invest in someone, make sure you do it because you trust them. Same as we talked about with the trust and, and respect back and forth. And I think the best relationship I could have with entrepreneurs I invest in nowadays is the fact that they pick up the phone and say like, hey, Barry, you got 10 minutes. I have a question. So much work more to me than, than board seats, to be honest. I think you're absolutely right. I want to go back to recruiting and just finish this because it's not over. It's actually still going, but you build it. It is a platform that people can use to manage their applicants that come in and has some sort of magic secret sauce, AI machine learning that helps match that applicant to your company based on the profile that you fill out and then uses past history 
that you've aggregated across the platform to help match people? That's a great pitch, but unfortunately, that's not how I could. That would be a lie because there's no AI, there's no matchmaking. That's that's actually uh, you no. Know, that maybe that's the story in a couple of years. But we actually tend to stay away from that because we really don't want to get into the process of like decision making. So it's a kind of stand we took a while back when we said, look, we need to build something that assists the work of recruiters, right? So we don't go into the area of like helping you make decisions, but we really want to get you to be able to decide as soon as possible, right? So we said like, let's build a talent acquisition platform. So it's a platform that helps you acquire people as soon as possible. And that's it, let's say. And the three ways to acquire people is like you could you could have internal referrals. You could ask your colleagues like, hey, you know, I get a referral fee if you sign up here. That tends to work great. We see a lot of traction there. Another way is to use job ads, right? So we help companies distribute to thousands of real boards, free and paid. And a third is like sourcing, right? So you go on LinkedIn or, or, or Indeed or, or social media and we help them import into the system. So basically, on the on like uh, on the like attracting side, we help them with the three pillars to get candidates in, and then the real software is just about as much automation and time saving you could think of, right? So a calendly style invitation for your meetings, email automations to say like, okay, if I drag someone in this phase, I want to send that email, I want to ping this colleague to leave a review, I want to set myself a reminder to follow up. So, so we're we're all about automating and efficiency. And although what you're saying could potentially be possible, it's something we actually still shy away from, to be honest. So we just keep it with helping you hire as soon as possible. Yeah. Well, I actually like that. That was my imagination because yeah, I, yeah, yeah. you're a visionary. It's a good one, actually. <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, no, but I think this is a prime example where entrepreneurs can get off track is that you and Paul have, have literally narrowed in and stayed focused to the core to be absolutely great at managing the process and automating it. Because when you just started describing it, I'm going through a process right now. I was like, I need that. And mm. I don't need the bells and whistles. To your point, I will make the decision. But all of that process is complicated. And to have a platform that just did that, which Recruity does and does it great. That's how you win in the market. And I think that's really a testament to you and Paul's discipline to understand who you are and not get caught in this media pool that mm. throws around these things. So I, I think I congratulate you both for doing that because that's super hard. Yeah, thanks. And I think to add to that, I think if I look back, it's been about, okay, we need to create something that's scalable used by many businesses we see this problem of hiring how how complex and frightening it could be let's build something that helps companies and truth to be told in the early days we were really not busy with how much money can we make on this and how do we scale it really wasn't how do we get many companies to use it as soon as possible i remember doing the first sales pitch going to like an agency that said like well i work for multiple clients in excel you know look i have color coded here are my tabs for each client i've color coded different interview states still many people are doing that i think there was research about half the companies are still not using a system so literally excel sheet and i told him like oh my god please use my, our software please you're gonna give it for free three months free usage and then please you tell me what it's worth and then you pay that 
because I really, really want you to use this because you're going to save so much time. And he didn't want to move away from his old process with Excel and Outlook. So I told him, start with one client and one job. That's it. Three months, free usage. And literally tell me what it's worth. Like, I really didn't care about what he was paying. I just like, I saw his process and I'm like, oh my God, we really need to solve this. And, uh, and in the end, he said, like, I, I'm moving everyone and every job over. Yeah. <laughs> so where are you guys today? How big is your company? And give the listeners a little bit of the statistics yeah, because the it's been a quite details. a journey to this success. Yeah, it's been quite a journey. So in the end, you know, we had this seed investment, which we purchased back. We, we didn't have any other primary money in the company except taking a small loan of like, like 150K of a bank that we paid back. And it literally, there was like this tipping point, you know, it's been, it's been difficult to get the company up to 40, 50 K of monthly revenue. And that's the first phase, definitely. Right. And then you get up to like two, three hundreds, which been more scaling phase. A lot of the processes and teams were tested at this stage. A lot of stuff that worked in the early days didn't work anymore. It starts to break. Everything you hacked start to break at that point. You need to implement new system. And then at some point, you have this magic tipping point and things that work start to accumulate. And we have now passed already by far the above 10 million ARR uh, milestone. We're 135 people and we're still growing about 80% a year now. So I think we're now in a magic spot where, uh, where, where true magic of SaaS starts to happen. And you have both on your new sales, which is like entering new markets, like you mentioned in the early conversation, some opportunities actually start because some markets have a w- quick adoption rate to cloud, cloud now that they haven't had before, like the DAW region, for instance. We see a l- 130% year-over-year growth in the DAW region now. So you have this new sales recruitment uh, speed acceleration going on because you're really gaining momentum, brand is working, you get into new customers and new regions. But then you also have a sticky product that has like a, a positive retention. So on the customer base, we're also growing 115, 120% a year, or 15 to 20% a year on your customer base. So if you, if you add those two, yeah, you get like the magic of SaaS and it, it really becomes a rocket. Yeah. What's your primary acquisition channel? Still, we don't do outbound sales. So remember the early day principles and this needs to be inbound driven. No outbound sales needed in order to sell could be, of course, a nice to have, but not a need to have. So still, I think about 30% is organic. So we put a lot of energy in, in ebooks and content and, and really getting an inbound flow. And then the second one is online advertisements because it's quite a niche product. You know, by the time you search for applicant tracking system, you tend to be in a quite a, a niche category. So advertisements work for us. And um, yeah, so a bit of a mix, but, but mainly organic and ads. Yeah. And on the ebooks, are you advertising to, to that target customer and then going to a download in the ebook, capturing that lead and then following up? Yeah, we have done that, but now we kind of just opened up and said like, look, we actually see that as brand building. So not as like lead gathering, but more in the bucket of like, let's build a brand, let's give it away, let's invest a lot. And then eventually we believe it will come back. So that's because otherwise it will also be needed for like outbound sales. You need to follow up on that email and people tend to get way too many emails, especially recruiters nowadays. So that, that's a really hard audience to sell to. We had to invest a lot in the brand, meaning our marketing department has like 15 disciplines in, you know, we have our own video producer. We have content localized in Germany and France and the Netherlands and in the uh, UK, US. 
have SEO specialists, we have like our own designers in the marketing team, we have an event manager, PR manager. So it's very horizontal the marketing team that represents all the different channels we get and we acquire customers from. So I know we're running against the clock and you're busy, but I do want to just touch on one thing before we go. You raised money, was it several hundred thousand dollars or mm-hmm. yeah, and, and then you paid it back. What made you mm-hmm. do that? It's uh, it was an opportunity because we were actually in 2017 going down a VC route, pitching. We had we had at some point term sheets at the table, and we sit down with the investors and, and we told them openly, like, look, I actually think this doesn't feel like the right time and 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 the right thing for us now because we're so much busy with this product that it feels if we start to raise money now, we're going down on the track of like, okay, growth, 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 right? Which any VC reasonably expect. And we said, but it, do- it doesn't feel right. We we wanted to invest in the product. We So we said like, I think we're much more about like this this, this long-term volume play than, than just a VC route. And they gave us the option. They said, look, it's pretty simple. We can do this round for you. Then we take a bigger uh, share. You can raise money. And you can offer secondary if you want to like reshuffle your shareholder uh, cards or, or you can do, you can buy us out and then you go full independent. So we actually looked at all those options and then we said, okay, we need to take a big hat, go to family and friends and then say like, look, we're going to buy them out to celebrate our independence day is what we call it. <laughs> so you did take some money, but they gave you the option to buy them out at some predetermined number and then you went and got some investors to buy them out, which are more friendly exactly. to yeah, your company yeah. and aren't going yeah. to drive you to this stratosphere rocket. They understand you're going yeah. to grow, but they're more of a long-term horizon versus, in all fairness, that's yeah. VCs having been one. Your job is to make a lot of money and make these companies grow. So I think that was a fair deal, it sounds like, for everybody involved. Yeah, and it was a difficult one because I, I had to go to family and say like, hey, you know, this is a real opportunity. Can you help me out? And uh, credit to the seed investors because we had term sheet at the table and they made us an offer which was so much lower than the term sheet that we also knew like, okay, it's now or never. Like, this is an opportunity. They're happy with that return. We can still do it if we go to family. It's now or never. So we never wanted to go to family in the first place to say, hey, we need some startup capital. But now we said like, okay, we need to get all the help we can. And my family was then active in property development. So it wasn't liquid. So we literally had to make a deal where we said, okay, we're going to sell property. It's going to come in six months. If not, you get this interest and stuff. So it was actually pretty complicated and a big leap of faith for family to say, okay, this sounds like the right thing to do. And then we set up this loan construction where we can buy them, uh, pay them back, et cetera. Well, I think that's incredible. And I really appreciate you sharing the, the details of that because I think it's important for people to understand out there that VC money isn't always it. And VCs, they're not bad. Their job is to make a lot of money and they they look for companies that fit that. And sometimes you don't. As we wrap up here, mm-hmm. what three pieces of advice would you give fellow business owners out there to help them yeah. grow and scale their companies? Yeah, I think maybe related to the chat we just had, like one is don't, don't be afraid to make these sacrifices. You know, it's, if all goes well, it's temporary. You spend five, you spend 10, maybe 15 years. But if you put this energy in, it will flourish. I'm definitely convinced, you know, everything you give a lot of attention and love will flourish eventually. So I think it's about the second tip is then persistence, of course. Sounds a bit cliche, but, but it's really 
easier said than done because it's everybody can quit, but uh, you're going to have a lot of setbacks. That's a given, right? It's about how often can you, can you stand up after you fall down? So I think the second one is just like I once asked someone, how do I get a hundred customers? You know, it's so difficult to sell this, this MVP. And someone's in the audience when I asked that question said like, just keep calling until you have them. And I'm like, Oh geez, that's, and I started, that's how I got the first hundred tested for it, which is just literally download some list and just keep calling until you have them. So put aside your pride. Persistence is fine. And the third tip, but that's maybe easy looking back is to really do find personal space for yourself that gives you a bit of balance as an entrepreneur. Because if you do take the first tips and you really go all in, then it's hard to maybe go, you know, go beyond your capacity. I think we also faced some burnout moments. You know, I had like, I couldn't move my arm at some point because I had like mouse issues, RSE in my arm. I couldn't move my arm anymore. It was, it was really bad. Like I had to take a break of a couple of weeks. You just need to do stretching and avoid that my whole arm would freeze up. So maybe it was needed to get where we are today. But if I look back, I would say, okay, maybe I was too focused on getting it done in the shortest amount of time possible and take another year and you, you don't have to stretch it, you know, like you stretch it a bit more. I mean. So I guess balance and maybe find something that you could, you know, get some mind space. Like for me personally, a bit of golf would work fine outside, fresh air, need to focus on the game. Otherwise it's terrible anyway. So that's, that's a bit of meditation for me or go golfing. Yeah. Well, those are three great tips. Thanks for sharing those. Where's the best place for listeners to find you? Uh, LinkedIn, email LinkedIn, very Ostom handle and uh, always respond to a message and uh, always want to bounce ideas. So. Perry, thanks so much for taking time out of your busy day to join us and share a lot of intimate details that will help our listeners. Thanks, Brandon. Great for having me. Thanks. Thanks for being generous with your time and joining us for this episode of The Edge. Before you go, a quick question. Are you the type of person who wants to get 100% out of your time, talent, and ideas? If so, you'll love our monthly Edge newsletter. It's a monthly playbook about the inner game of building a successful business. In each newsletter, we pull back the curtain on our business and show you exactly what's happening. The real numbers, real conversion rates, lessons learned from failed and successful strategies, and how we're investing the money we make from our business to outperform the general stock market. We lay out what we're doing to get 75% conversion rates on our product pages how we're optimizing our Facebook, Instagram, and other paid ads to get our leads under $3.87. The results from our email A-B tests. Results from strategies I test to get more done in less time. That allows me to ride my bike 100 plus miles a week, work out, spend time with Yvette, and still successfully run our business. How I'm investing the money we make from our business that has led our retirement account to average 20% over the last 10 years. The exact stocks, ETFs, cryptocurrencies, and other investments we're buying each and every month, and tons of other actionable information. Imagine the time and money you'll save by having this holy grail of business intelligence. You can take all of it, apply it to your life as an entrepreneur to avoid costly mistakes and be happier, healthier, and richer. As a fellow entrepreneur who's aiming for nothing short of success, you owe it to yourself to subscribe. Check out the special offer with bonuses for you as a listener at edgenewsletter.com. Again, that's E-D-G-E newsletter.com.